0: All right, we are in Luke 17 today, so turn that way in your Bibles, and let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is life for us. We know that it is light to our our minds, to our, our hearts, to our souls, so that we might understand what it is that you have for us. And Father, we know that sometimes it's kind of difficult because there are things that we need to understand and that we need to do that are contrary to our our personality, contrary to our, our sinful nature. But Lord, we pray for your spirit to overflow us, over, overwhelm us, God, and, and bring us to the place of, of recognizing the power that we have to do as you have commanded us. And so we are grateful for your word, Lord, we pray that you open up our hearts, open up our minds, and uh, bring that life to us. We thank you in Jesus' name now maybe you know that with many cults there are certain things that they don't want you to know uh, about them you have to be on the in to know the password to know the secret handshake the d- the different things that are a part of that and and a part of that includes some of the teaching that they will teach they don't want you to know this thing here until they've caused you to swallow this other thing down here it's a progressive kind of a a uh, deceit really is what it is in case in point some people that we know that left the Mormon Church because they came to someone and said you know we want to talk to you about this whole doctrine about us becoming gods and the guy could tell that they were concerned about this having grown up in, in a Christian church and all And he said no 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 we we don't teach that and almost immediately I mean the same day almost immediately the guy coming in to teach the class came in and he said Hey, let's talk about how we become gods. And they go, they, they're lying to us. And so they left, which is obviously a good thing. But Christianity is not like that. We don't have secrets. We don't go to deceive people. And if you are ever in a church where that's what's going on, you need to run away because it's not a true biblical church. Now, there is some information, though, that is for the believer and not necessarily for the one who is yet to be a believer, not because it's secret, but because it pertains to how to live as a believer, rather than why to become a believer. Now, that's why most of the Bible, really, it's written to the believer, not to the non-believer, right? And so, case in point with that is giving us instruction for us to be able to live the way that God has called us to to live. Now it's not like that's a secret thing it's good for everyone to read the Bible because for one thing it will cause people to understand what it means to be a believer the cost of discipleship if you will and since we're supposed to count the cost it's great for people to read the Bible it's it's not something that is a secret from anyone but we see this through the scripture many times when it says but as for you or things like that right there's these other people, but as for you, this is how you should be living. This is how you should be thinking. This is what should be on your mind with it. And we, we see that with Jesus. We see him teaching the crowds. We see him teaching all these, these thousands of people. But then he'll turn and say, now this is for you guys. This is for the disciples. And, and there'll be other people who are listening in, and, and Jesus doesn't really care about that. But it's specific to The believer because there's instructions for us for following after that teaching so if you are not a disciple of Jesus he didn't tell you these different things because he doesn't expect that of you but if you are a disciple no matter how contrary to your own nature it is we know that it isn't really optional right and so we see that in chapter 17 some but first let's make sure we know the background Jesus has given the story about the rich man and Lazarus, remember? And the Pharisees are displeased that Jesus is, I mean, he's saying, he's indicating that they are not worthy to be sons of Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith, not just the father of Isaac and Jacob. And he says that they're not sons of Abraham because, because they're not sons of faith. So... Um, the Pharisees have been holding themselves up as the standard. This is what it's like to be right with God. This is how you should understand, and this is how you should try to live your life like us. But Jesus, instead, he takes a pitiful poor man like Lazarus and says, Now this, this is a child of faith. This one is in the arms of Abraham. This is the one that you should be like because he is one that has faith. Because understand that God is not impressed by what you own, only by if he owns you. So let's start. 17, verse 1. Now he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that offenses come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It is better for him if a millstone is hung around his neck and he is thrown into the sea than that he may cause one of these little ones to sin. So the offense or the stumbling that it has here it's attributed most of the time to those who are diverting people from following after God following after Jesus in the case and uh, it's it's quite rightfully so Uh, they cause people to stumble and refuse to put their faith in Jesus now whether it's the cultist or the false teacher or the Pharisee that Jesus is dealing with uh, right here Jesus gives warning to these people so that they will understand the significance of what they're doing, the the problem, and, and just how great of an issue that it is. Now, with the context that we have here, I mean this warning that he has for for these other people, that's great. But with the context, he's talking to the disciples. So how do we uh, look at this with the the viewpoint of that he is talking to the disciples, the apostles specifically, is what it's going to say a little bit later on. Because we need to know that it's instruction for the believer. We need to know that it's instruction for us right now. And he says that it's inevitable that offenses come. We know that people are going to be offended. We know that there's going to be these different things. These things that try to bring people to the place of stumbling. Of making it so that, that you lose faith. Or, in other ways, just having sinned against you. And it seems pretty straightforward with that, but but that the believer is so far from perfect with that. Does that shock you? Does it shock you that the, the human nature that we have, even as believers, will cause us to be uncaring and arrogant and careless and thoughtless and spiteful and mean and on and on and on, right? You get the idea with that. Well, Paul wasn't shocked by it. He lists out these these lists of the works of the flesh and says, look, this is how you have been, but this is how that you need to be now. He said that we need to recognize our sinfulness, but that we would focus on loving one another and dying to ourselves. So he says, Jesus says, a millstone could be wrapped around your neck and cast you into the sea, and it would be better than causing... One of these little ones to stumble. A millstone is a big old stone, round wheel type looking thing, and it was 1,000 to 2,000 pounds or so, and it rolled around on a different stone, and you would put your grain down on top of that flat stone, and the wheel would go around, and it would squish it and turn it into flour for you. So imagine having that tied around your neck and being thrown out into the sea. Can you imagine just going down and down? There are some ways that I don't want to, drown, uh, to die, and, and drowning is one of them. Have you guys ever had a dream that you were drowning? No, Susan hasn't. I bet you have, you just don't remember it because you don't always remember. I hate those dreams. And I know that I've had those dreams because I've woken up desperately gasping for air. And, and it's like, oh wow, that's just horrible. But that would be better than harming one of these little ones. Do we have the same kind of desperation for not offending one another, for not stumbling our brothers and sisters? Do we have any kind of an urgency that we not be like that? See, offenses are inevitable, it says, both because we fail, but also because people are quick to take up offenses today, right? It's like this meme here says, Good morning, America. What are we offended by today? Well, the list is long, isn't it? We are offended by so many things. And there are plenty of people trying to take up the offense of others that they perceive as being wronged, whether they have been wronged or not. And we've for a long time had safe places, right? I'm in a safe place. You can't say anything to me that's going to offend me. Because I'm in this secret safe place I'm on base like we were playing freeze tag or something right and what it's done it is it's created a nation that cannot reason for fear of hearing a different idea we wouldn't want that but the greater issue for the church is that it happens within the church it's the same thing here I mean not this particular building you particularly people and all but it happens within the church the church we are so quick to be offended by those outside and by those inside the church but let me ask you if we can't be offended how are we going to tolerate persecution are we so weak are we so frivolous that we can't handle any kind of an offense toward us and so, as we continue with what Jesus is saying to his disciples, both then and, and now, it is difficult. And many falter concerning it, this specific place here. But it's another example of, as for you, we, the disciples of Christ, as for us, this is how we need to be living our life. And it's a f- inevitable being offended because there are offenses but verse 3 says be on your guard if your brother sins rebuke him and if he repents forgive him and if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying I repent you shall forgive him now keep in mind this is in the same context of of not stumbling of not stumbling ourselves but also us not causing other people to stumble as well not causing a brother or a sister to to stumble and one of the greatest disservices that we do for one another today is to not desire and to not allow correction we tend to not have the real passionate needs uh, to have complete and total surrender if we did we would be like let me know help me with whatever that I'm doing that is, is contrary to God let me know so that I can be more the way that God wants me to be. And if you think about an athlete who is trying to be the very best that they can be, you will, you will see the hours of work, of training, of discipline, of coaching, all because they want to be able to be the very best that they can be. And that's why Paul uses the illustration of an athlete when he's talking about what the Christian life is should be like now as a softball umpire I like calling the games for the ladies league and my and my uh, umpire chief he likes me umpiring for the ladies also because for whatever reason the ladies don't give me the hard time that they give some of the other guys uh, whatever but there are always ladies who have been are playing this for the very first time in their lives and many of them are not spring chickens And it's the first time that they're playing and and whereas the the guys they don't want any kind of uh, help they don't want any kind of hint they don't want any kind of instruction or coaching and stuff like that a lot of times the ladies do and what do you do with the the lady who knows the very least about softball in baseball the catcher is a a highly skilled position very important position for slow-pitch softball it's like you're the one that fetches the ball and throws it back to the pitcher. If there's a play at the play, yeah, maybe they'll 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 throw it to you, but usually the pitcher will come in and take those those throws and stuff. So it's a matter of helping these catchers to do what they ought to be doing. Things like like just throwing off the right foot, you know, instead of eh, and trying to throw it back to the, the pitcher and wherever it might end up going standing in the right place so the pitch stops hitting me in the shin. These are important things, and, and just being able to instruct them with things. Things like, hey, when you're trying to be in position to make a play at the plate, don't stand on it, because that's where the people are coming, and you don't want to die today. All right, So little things like that are important for, for teaching, for coaching, and, 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 all. and I don't go around and just be bossy and, and tell them these things. And I ask them, do you want some hints with this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, hey, you know the best thing that you can do in order to hit the, hit the ball? You need to stand somewhere close to where they're throwing the pitch. <laughs> you, 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 anyway, well, we need to be able to correct one another in all humility. But when was the last time that you told a brother or sister, dude, you're wrong? Not, dude, you're wrong. But, dude, you're wrong. Rebuke doesn't have to be harsh. That's what Paul says to Timothy, right? But still, isn't rebuke love? Godly rebuke is. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Or incognito love Proverbs 9 verse 8 rebuke a wise man and he will love you if they don't love you after a godly rebuke that means that they're not wise and if we refuse rebuke and we don't love then hey we might check out that correlation of whether we're wise or not and you can do a word study on this and look about the the correlation between wisdom and accepting rebuke don't rebuke from anger but through love and through truth it's not a matter of vengeance but of compassion and restoration it's a course alteration where it's for the benefit benefit of the person that's being rebuked and not for the ego of the person who's doing the rebuking And, and I've seen it work too I've seen it work in this very place where someone will come up to someone else and they told them, hey, look, man, you got to stop that. And the person stopped that. I mean, I'm proud of you for for doing that, both for having the courage and the love to be able to speak to the person and the other person saying, you're right. Not throwing up some kind of defense. Who are you to tell me? We want to do what God wants for us because we want to be the church the way that God wants us to be the church, right? This is how it should be. We absolutely need to keep in mind, though, the illustration from last week, though. Remember talking about the looking glass instead of the magnifying glass. About using the Word of God to, to show us that we what we have need of, not going around looking for who we can rebuke. If some but he trespasses against you, what are you supposed to do? Well, according to the prayer that Jesus gave us, we're supposed to forgive those trespasses so that he will forgive us of our trespasses, right? Does it mean to blow off that trespass? Does it mean to act like it didn't happen? Is it to ignore trespasses? Is it to make light or little of it? are we supposed to continue to be walked all over well there are those who teach that but Jesus wasn't one of them Jesus said if your brother sins against you rebuke them stand up for yourself and tell them what they're doing is wrong now there are those who like to rebuke right they like going around and and trying to run other people's lives You need to do this, you need to do that, you need to, you need to, and they don't look at what God was wanting for them, but they go around telling other people what they ought to be doing and what they are doing wrong. Well, if they feel like it is their job to run other people's lives, they're wrong. It is not a godly trait. But neither is allowing people to continue in their ungodly manner. Rebuke is not to lose your cool. It's not to scream at people. It's not to yell and and verbally beat up on people. It's a matter of saying, well, that ain't right. That's not right. And the first rebuke that I remember in my life, it came back in 1974. That's a while ago. I was in junior high. My brother, who is a year older than I, We wanted to hang out with this this group of older Christian guys, and they were playing volleyball or something like that, and so we were trying to be involved with it and stuff, even though we were the snot nosed punks and and, and all. And the high school guys, they were very nice, very considerate for letting us be around there. But as was the case oftentimes, I got upset at my brother, and I, I called him a name that I won't repeat. And one of the older guys, high school guys, came to me and, and just said, y- do you know what that word means? Like, no. He says, well, you might not want to use it then. That was a nice, soft rebuke, right? That nice, soft rebuke came from Tim Acom. <laughs> so you can tell Tim I talked about him today. We need to understand that rebuke is important, but that needs to be a godly rebuke. Tim didn't need to come and yell at me from across the volleyball court and stuff like that. He needed to come to me and say, dude, that ain't right. And he did. Now, we have read about Jesus rebuking the disciples from time to time, right? And he wasn't out of control. The disciples, they didn't feel belittled or abused or attacked a trifle embarrassed perhaps. But even then, when Jesus rebuked them, he rebuked them in this this group, in this little group of of disciples rather than rebuking them in front of everybody else. And that's how we ought to be. When we rebuke, we should go one-on-one and and tell the one person what is going on, what they're doing wrong uh, against us. But let me ask you, who are you supposed to rebuke? says your fellow believer when are you supposed to rebuke them it says if he sins and by context against you if he sins against you don't think that it's your job to find fault in others so that you can love them upside the head With some kind of verbal attack in fact the context is forgiving those who trespass against us but how often are we just furious at people? How often we'll see somebody and we will just give them the stink eye, the death stare, every time we see them. We just, (sighs) and our blood boils whenever we think about what they've done against us, how they've harmed us. And they have no idea in the world that we have bad feelings towards them. Well, they should know her. I know I'm not talking about you guys though, right? If you have not told the person what they have done and why you are hurt and angry, it's on you. It's not on them. They're not supposed to be able to read your mind. And if you lack the maturity to go to those whom you feel have offended you, it's your fault and not theirs. If you are unwilling to forgive you are in conflict with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and yeah it's tough I know but that's why the disciples listening said to him what it says in verse 5 says the Apostle said to the Lord increase our faith increase our faith we listen to this and we're saying the same thing increase our faith how are we supposed to do that how are we supposed to live such radical obedience to God? It says, and to forgive them every time they come, come and confess repentance. And poor Peter, man, he thought he was generous. He came to Jesus and said, hey, I'm going to forgive my brother seven times. See, the standard was three times if he trespasses against you 3 times then the fourth time you can lay into him it's like uno pass those pass trespass but Jesus has an altogether different standard it's every time every time and if we use a different standard than his we act religious but we're not having that fellowship with God That's going to empower us to be able to do what he's told us to do. If you are living with bitterness and refuse to forgive, you are not right with God. You can't be. You are not walking as a disciple, but you're walking more closely to being the hypocrite that the Pharisees were by saying, they are not worthy of me forgiving them. They don't deserve it. But If we're going to go off of what is deserved, we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of the balance sheet there. What we deserve. And you're probably asking, do they have to mean it? Or can they just say it? Can they just say, I repent? And it's a good question. This is where digging into the the Greek can really be helpful for understanding what it is that he has for us here. Because, I mean, can our ego... Handle constant offenses from people. And the Greek word for saying, if your brother comes to you saying, I repent, the word for saying is Lego. Seriously. Lego, my ego. Okay? Lego. It's the building block of relationship and restoration with one another. But the word means that they not just say, but they put forth. Repentance, that they mean repentance. It's not like, I repent, I repent, I repent. That's what you did with your little brother and sister, right? No, this is that they put forth repentance. We're not talking about you tolerating abuse. And in fact, if you noticed, Jesus said, be on your guard against, stand up against. It isn't a matter of just taking whatever people have for you, especially your brother and your sister. But your capacity for forgiveness needs to be limitless, like Christ's is for us. I increase my faith, man. How, do I do this? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Do I need my faith increased? Absolutely. Absolutely. But isn't this just one of those times where Jesus gives you know those messages that are are kind of warm and mushy and and, and he didn't really expect us to do this, right? It's just a, oh hey, this would be cool if you could do. He didn't really expect us to do that, right? Did you notice in verse 4 that it says you shall forgive them. It isn't optional. It isn't a request. He doesn't prefer it. It's as if he's saying, look, guys, you are my body. And tearing it apart, not mending it back together is not optional. And we'll see that clearly in, in just a minute. But what happens today? What happens in the church today? That person offended me. I'm going to a different church. You can probably go up to several people here today and ask them, well, who torqued you off? And find out why they came from a different church and why they don't do this. This is just an illustration, okay? I'm not saying that you should do that, but in fact, you don't have to ask people. They will freely give you this information. Did you know that that person offended me? Did you know that that person hurt my feelings and... We want to try to help with it, and so oftentimes we'll say, well, how did they do that? And we'll start the cycle of, of this gossip. But what we should do is say, oh, man, that, that's harsh. Hey, Let's go and talk to that person, and let's make it right. Let's restore that res- relationship that we're supposed to have. See, when we confront somebody like this, it causes us to rebuke the gossip, but it also causes us to be able to repair the division amongst the body of Christ. And I've been pastoring for almost 40 years now, and I, I can't even count the number of times when I've gone and I've talked to somebody that's left the church and I said, you know, what's, what's going on? Why did you leave? Well, that person, they made me mad. It's their fault, and so I'm leaving. It's like, well, can... We get together with them and let's, let's talk to them and, and let's see if we can make it right. No, I will not forgive them. And with their self-justification, they sever the relationship with Christ. Not the relationship with the person, but they harm the relationship with Christ because if we do not forgive the trespasses of the other person, then our trespasses are not forgiven by Christ. And so our fellowship with Him is devastated. Even if we were right, even if the other person was 100% at fault, not that we were just, you know, whiners, not that we just felt bad, not that we were um, offended for offense' sake, still it's the case. But what about those who have truly wronged you you weren't overly sensitive but they were wrong and they will just not try to make it right perhaps you even scripturally took somebody with you to try to make it so that it was right to restore that relationship to to try to to make it the way that it's supposed to be but you just find out that they're just not sorry can you forgive them Should you forgive them? See, the weight of unforgiveness is not something that you want to bear on your shoulders. By forgiving the other person, you put that weight of responsibility upon them and the conviction of God upon them and not upon yourself. And I'm not saying that it's all right. I'm not saying that it's no big deal. But let God take up your offense. By forgiving, all you're doing is saying, this is God's responsibility for action against them. It doesn't mean that you're going to be buddies. It doesn't mean that you're going to be pals. It doesn't mean that you're going to be BFFs if they don't want any kind of relationship, want any kind of restoration, even if they won't recognize their fault in it. But understand, though, we can forgive someone who doesn't repent, but we cannot restore relationship without that repentance I can forgive them but we will never have a restoration of relationship until they come to the place of wanting that restoration of coming to the place of repentance with that what happened to the nice three weeks of Christmas messages that we had can't can't we just go back to those instead of what we have here? Well, I want you to understand that God does not require anything of you which he does not empower you to do. And so we see in verse 6, but the Lord said, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So let's keep the context with this. People take this verse out of context all the time and talk about how much faith we have and, and people go around and, and they uh, try to uproot trees and throw them into the sea. They did that with the Sahara Forest. See, it's a Sahara Desert now. It was a forest. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be better. Anyway, Jesus says you already have the faith you just need to use it he didn't say it was easy but he said that you can use that faith and the mulberry tree it had deep gnarly roots one of the the deepest gnarliest rooted trees around and so to pull that up is easier than trying to pull up the roots of bitterness that can be caused because of our lack of forgiveness Because of our lack of even telling the other person what they have done is wrong. See, the bitterness comes in me if I don't stand up. If I don't go to the person and say, look, I have a problem with you right now. My fellowship with you is broken because of something that I perceive that you've done. And if I rebuke them and they turn, then I've won my brother. If I find out that it was actually my fault instead of theirs, well then I need to repent And then I restore the relationship, right? Don't let the bitterness take hold in your life. And in verse 7, he says, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which ought to have been done. So this is still the same time. I mean, this is not three days later. This is the same time. And this is not some parable that needs to be done dug deep into and dissected to figure out the meaning of it, Jesus is simply saying, who is the master and who is the slave? Jesus is the one telling us what we must do. He is the master. He is the sovereign. and He has the right to tell us what we must do. You shall forgive, right? So, Should we be rebuking one another should we be restoring one another this is what Jesus is saying and he has the right to say it to us he says that he has the right so that people will rebuke us and that we will rebuke other people so that we will not have broken fellowship within the church and we're to say we are unworthy slaves We have done only that which we ought to have done. This is what we need to do. It's what we ought to do for the benefit of you, for the benefit of me, for the benefit of the world as well. The church needs this because interpersonal relationships are tough, aren't they? But he gives us three things here. We can take them with us and we can think about them this This week, number one, don't be the offense. Don't be the one who offends or causes your brother or sister to stumble. Choose others over yourself. Prefer one another in love is the way that Paul put it. So think, be considerate. How do my actions reflect to this person here? It's like the person who won't eat meat that Paul was talking about. It's a stumbling block for them to eat meat. Paul said, if that's the case, I won't eat meat. Are we that concerned about other people? That we're concerned about how they feel? And if you screw up, more likely when you screw up, would you just confess it? Instead of trying to hide it, instead of trying to justify yourself, we you just confess it and repent over it. The second thing is to rebuke an offense. Correct the person who has, has wronged you. They need to know it so that they can change. They need to know it so that you can have your relationship restored one with another. If you're going to rebuke me for this message, remember that Paul said not to sharply rebuke an elder. So finally something beneficial for being old. That's a good thing. But we need to understand that Jesus is telling us this so that the power of the church might be as it should be because the spirit of the living God is flowing through us so that we can affect the world as well. And the third thing is, forgive any offense. Is there an offense that you haven't been able to get over? Whether people here, whether people other places, elsewhere? We need to forgive whatever offense has come against us. And it's not easy. It takes faith. It takes trusting obedience. But Jesus said that, By this you prove that you are my disciples. And by your love you prove to the world that you are my disciples. When we are different from the world, the world will take notice. But right now, as for us, are we really different than how the world treats one another? It's very clear. We rebuke to restore so be willing to be rebuked and be willing to have restoration of any relationship that is wrong so take that with us this week and I do say us this week because it's what the church needs to be and we are the church let's pray Father God this is this is very difficult it's it's a hard thing for us to, to listen to because it, it deals with wrongs done to us. It, it deals with the, the depth of our hearts that are, are sometimes hurt and destroyed by other people, but, but you make it very clear that this is what you require of us, that it isn't optional. And so I pray that we would come to you for the power to be able to forgive, the love to be able to forgive. God, restore relationships within the body of Christ, not just this group here, but within the body of Christ, God. We want to be right with you, and we want our relationship with you restored by forgiving and being forgiven. Be with us this week, Lord. Through your spirit, make us more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Well, Lord bless you guys.